0: Welcome to the Michael M. show right here on the blog talk radio network. We are live tonight. Uh, it is Tuesday, April 11th, 2017, and we are live tonight. We're broadcasting Uh, Also on Facebook Live, our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network on Facebook, we're broadcasting there as well. All right, so how's everybody doing? I wanted to broadcast earlier today, but I was just too tired. Uh, The night before, uh, I did not get a lot of sleep. I was up doing a lot of research. Last night, uh, my plan was to get to bed earlier. I got to bed about 3.30 in the morning. I was up late last night doing uh, research also and uh, taking some vitamin C tablets as well. Okay, so shout out to everybody on Facebook Live. Uh, We have a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, First of all, you have some breaking news story. If you've been following our Facebook uh, feed, uh, we posted about this uh, on my personal page. We have a breaking news story uh, dealing with the Donald Trump administration and Carter Page, uh, former advisor in the Donald Trump administration, um, you, uh, the Washington Post broke a story uh, this evening uh, about two hours ago. The FBI obtained FISA warrants, uh, obta- obta- obtained a FISA warrant to monitor former Donald Trump advisor Carter Page to monitor former Donald Trump advisor Carter Page. We'll talk about that here on the show. Uh, First, we're going to get into this story about the DOJ, the Department of Justice. Now, you know, we've been talking about uh, the DOJ uh, here on the show, and the um, Department of Justice wants to ramp up the war on drugs again. The Department of Justice wants to ramp up uh, the war on drugs, okay, This is going to have a devastating impact on on the African-American community. If you've been following this, if you've been listening uh, to our show, uh, the war on drugs has actually been uh, winding down. Uh, We saw uh, in August of 2016, the Obama administration announced that they were not going to renew contracts with 13 privatized prisons that were housing federal prisoners. That's been reversed under the Donald Trump administration. We know Donald Trump is very pro-police. He campaigned on law and order, but he's also uh, for privatized prisons. We know in March of 2016, he was interviewed by Chris Matthews on Hardball with Chris Matthews on MSNBC. And he said that privatized prisons seem to work very well and they seem to save money. That's not true at all. But what is true is that Core Civic, uh, which used to be called Corrections Corporation of America, Core Civic, and uh, Geo Group, which used to be Wackenhut, they donated almost six hundred thousand dollars to Donald Trump's campaign. That we do know, okay? That we do know. All right. So these are things that we're dealing with. All right. Um, so, so the the, the uh, Department of Justice under uh, Jeff Sessions wants to ramp up the war on drugs, and there was a big article from the Washington Post about this a couple of days ago. Also, Baltimore police reforms are, are going to move forward. This is based upon the consent decree agreed to by uh, President Obama's Department of Justice and uh, the Baltimore Police Department. Jeff Sessions was against. Uh, he's against the consent decrees in the first place, and uh, Jeff Sessions said this could make Baltimore less less safe, but the Baltimore police chief wants it. The mayor of Baltimore wants it, wants it also. Okay, they want this consent decree, and the DOJ under President Obama wanted the consent decree as well. So we're going to talk about that story, um, and then also everybody's seen the story about United Airlines, right, United Airlines. You saw this uh, Asian man, this uh, uh, doctor, uh, who was forcibly removed from uh, a plane, and uh, it was an overbooked plane. We're going to talk about this. This has been a nightmare for uh, United Airlines. Uh, The hashtag uh, Boycott United Airlines has been trending on social media we saw the stock price uh, closed at uh, it was down about 1.2% today. Uh, at one point, the stock price was down almost 4%. Uh, so it's, it's been a total uh, fiasco for uh, United Airlines. This has been a lesson on how not to handle public relations. This has been a lesson on how not to handle public relations Okay, for uh, United Airlines. Okay, so we'll talk about that story as well. And then um, a federal judge. Now, this story, uh, I saw this story in the Washington Post. um, And this story is from yesterday, April 10th, because I was up late doing research and checking my emails. I get email uh, updates from uh, different news sources, news outlets all throughout the day. You've heard before, and we've talked about this before on the show, the uh, Texas voter ID laws. Right. And we know that the, we know that the uh, uh, the DOJ uh, under Donald Trump had uh, backed away, uh, backed away from pursuing the case uh, against the Texas voter ID laws. Well, a federal judge has ruled that the Texas voter ID law intentionally discriminated against African-Americans. Intentionally discriminated against African Americans. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about that on uh, today's show as well. They intentionally discriminated against African Americans, also. Okay, so that's something extremely uh, important uh, as well. And oftentimes you hear people in social media, you'll see people in social media, uh, you hear a lot of white people say, "Well, well, where's the evidence?" of voter suppression and what's wrong with the voter ID laws, things like this. Right. And I've dealt with that on, um, nine ten AM, the superstation, wake up with Steve hood. That's the uh, radio station here in Detroit that, that, that I'm on. I have a show there every Sunday night and I'm there, uh, Thursday morning on uh Steve hood's radio show, wake up with Steve hood. I'm on the morning show every Thursday, uh, Seven a m to eight thirty a m well what's interesting is when you provide these people with uh the evidence they don't want to they don't want to read it they don't want to talk about it they don't want to act like the evidence exists but then they keep asking for the evidence imagine that they, they <laughs> when when they when 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 they keep asking for the evidence voter suppression and then when you provide it to them they don't go research it but then keep asking for the evidence okay so obviously you're not interested in the evidence if that's the case you you obviously are not interested in the evidence all right okay so uh we're going to deal with that as well all right so we're broadcasting also on the blog talk radio network We're broadcast on the blog talk radio network you can call in uh, and listen by phone or call in with a question or comment, 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number uh, if you have a question or comment, 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. We also posted the information um uh, on how to listen to the show as well uh, in the uh, description of the show. Uh, also, we have the link. You can listen on Blog Talk. Go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show. You can listen there as well, okay? All right, now, um, and we'll post that here on the thread as well. And I want to remind you coming up this Thursday, is uh the live international webinar understanding the transatlantic slave trade understanding the transatlantic slave trade what they didn't teach you in school uh the first session starts this thursday we have a new session starting up first session starts this thursday um it's uh 7 p.m to 9 p.m eastern standard time 7 p.m what the hell just happened 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Okay, I think we stopped broadcasting here on Facebook Live. you got to start that up again. All right, let's start that up again also. Okay, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. That is... Um, uh, that starts up uh, this Thursday. So visit African History Network dot com, African History dot com. Uh, we have the information there. Uh, it's an eight hour course. It's uh, four consecutive Thursdays. starts April 13th, uh, 2017, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. It's only forty dollars uh, for the entire course. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, okay? All right, so we're back on Facebook Live. I'm not sure what happened. It just stopped. Broadcast just stopped. We're back. Okay, so we're going to get into these stories here. All right, so on the uh, Michael M. Hotep show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's correct wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you. Is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you have been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the show. We deal with uh, current events and history and politics education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Also go to our website, uh, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can sign up for the email newsletter there as well, okay? All right, how's everybody doing? On uh, on Facebook Live, all right. And those watching on Facebook Live, who's registered for the um, live international webinar that we have uh, coming up this Thursday? Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Session number one of this new class starts up uh, this Thursday, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Thursday, April 13th. Who's registered? For the uh, class who needs me to post the link so you can uh, register for the class. Let me know and I'll I'll post the link here. Okay. All right. So I want to get into this first story here and I'm monitoring the news as well. Monitoring MSNBC here in our office for any breaking news stories. Um, It's dealing with the Department of Justice, and this is extremely important. And this is an example of why uh, elections have consequences. This is an example of how elections have consequences, and this is what I was explaining to people uh, leading up to uh, the election, okay? because I, I, I'm look I was looking at how things were shaping up, and I was looking at what was coming. I was looking at Donald Trump ramping up uh, the war on drugs, um, et cetera, okay. So there was an article from NewsOne.com that talked about uh, Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions wants, wants to um, wants to return to a war on drugs that led to mass incarceration. This is from April 10th. Uh, also, watch, they picked up this article from The Washington Post from April 8th, how Jeff Sessions wants to bring back the war on drugs. And in the article, it says, when the Obama administration launched a sweeping policy to reduce harsh prison sentences for nonviolent drug offenders, rave reviews came from across the political spectrum. Civil rights groups and the Koch brothers praised President Obama for his efforts, saying he was making the criminal justice system more humane. But there was one person, there was one person who watched these developments with some horror. uh, That was Stephen H. Cook who is um, a a former street cop who became a federal prosecutor based in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he saw nothing wrong with how the system worked. And he is one of Jeff Sessions, one of one of Attorney General's Jeff Sessions uh, lieutenants in the Department of Justice. Okay, Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions made criminal justice hardliner Stephen H. Cook, one of his top lieutenants at the Justice Department, signaling a return to the racially biased war on drugs policy that led to mass incarceration. According, uh, and This is from the article of news1.com. According to the Washington Post, Jeff Sessions and Steve uh, Stephen Cook are formulating a policy to step up drug and gun prosecutions as well as enforcing mandatory minimum sentences. Now, these are the things that we fought for the last 20 years against, Okay. according to The Washington Post, Jeff Sessions, Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, from Alabama and Stephen Cook from Knoxville, Tennessee, are formulating a policy to step up a a step up drug and gun prosecutions, as well as enforcing mandatory minimum sentences. Okay. they talked about this and uh, the Baltimore consent decree on News One Now with Roland Martin on uh, April 10th. Uh, Let's go to this clip.
1: A federal judge has thrown a wrinkle into the Department of Justice's efforts to overturn Obama-era police reforms. On Friday, U.S. District Judge James K. Breedar denied the DOJ's request to put on hold implementation of a consent decree agreement between the Obama Justice Department and the city of Baltimore regarding major police reforms pending a review by the Trump administration. In the ruling, the judge wrote, quote, there is no suggestion that when counsel for the parties signed their agreement that they did not have the full and complete authority to bind their clients to its terms, the time for expressing grave concerns has passed, and instead, parties must now execute the agreement as they promised they would. Attorney General Jeff Sessions expressed disappointment in the decision, saying, quote, I have grave concerns that some of the provisions of this decree reduce the lawful powers of the police department, and result in a less safe city. Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh had a different take.
2: I believe that what we put together was right for Baltimore and certainly right for our police department, and that we were committed, as I said to you all the other day, of moving this consent decree forward. So I think this is a great victory for the citizens of Baltimore as well as for
1: our police department. Meanwhile, the NAACP has put the Justice Department on notice that it will fight attempts to shut down consent decree agreements with police departments across the country. Joining me now is Ngozi Nadulu, Senior Director of Criminal Justice Programs for the NAACP. Uh, Here's the first thing I'm trying to understand here. Okay, So they make this decision, uh, Jeff Sessions, and it's as if he's giving police officers an excuse As opposed to actually reading the report and seeing how shameful the conduct has been of the Baltimore Police Department. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: Well, absolutely. Um, Attorney General Sessions had already made statements where he said that he hadn't actually read the report. And he was still already um, voicing his objections to them.
1: So he hasn't read the report, but he has
4: grave concerns.
1: How about you read it?
4: Right. I mean, that seems like that would be the first step, because when you actually read that report, I mean, these uh, the Department of Justice did a very thorough review and found Instances that I don't think that anyone can really argue about, about what is wrong with policing in Baltimore, just like they did um, in Ferguson, just like they did in Chicago, right? We're talking about systemic issues with policing that the attorney general um, is not willing to have the Department of Justice actually address with local police departments, because that's also something that's important to note here, that Baltimore is asking for the help of the federal government so in the guise of saying that we're supporting local um police departments where the attorney general is actually going against that and saying well the local police department doesn't really know what they're talking about it's it's a problem
1: this is first of all we we saw him go before the state's attorney generals Mm -hmm. uh and say oh yeah we're gonna pull back on this uh this administration uh, wants to do whatever they can to back police departments, back law enforcement. But what they're saying is, the hell with citizens. Because if you read that report, if you read the Chicago report, if you read the Cleveland report, if you read the Philadelphia report, the New Orleans report, you, the Ferguson report, I mean, you see instances where law, where law enforcement in those areas. Uh, has been uh, ruling with an iron fist against police. And it is as if Jeff Sessions is saying, we're going to let you guys do whatever you want. The hell with anybody overlooking your, uh, overlooking your shoulders.
4: Right. And and I don't see anywhere where systematic civil rights violations is actually helpful for public safety, right? we're If you are having issues with crime, the solution to those issues cannot be, well, go, you know, arrest, beat up, you know, people without regard to whether they have actually done anything wrong, without regard to to the racial disparities that are going on. Basically, you're saying that civil rights are incompatible with public safety? That can't be right. I'm
1: going to bring in a couple of our panelists. A. Scott Bolton, attorney and former chair of the Washington, D.C. Democratic Party, Angelo Pinto, senior attorney, Advancement Project, member of the Justice League of New York City. Again, uh, this this is Trump saying We don't care. Forget civil rights. All that stuff Sessions said during his confirmation hearings, we all know was a flat out damn lie. Uh, he had no intentions of backing civil rights, and he wants to be Mr. Law and Order. Well,
5: you know, the really interesting thing, or the thing to really focus on here, is the basis for Jeff Sessions' comments are that there are provisions in the consent decree that make it unsafe, or make cities unsafe. It borders on the nonsensical. What do these consent decrees do? They invest and require police departments and cities to invest in more training, uh, in technology, uh, invest in how to de-escalate interactions with young Young people and protesters. Uh, it's 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 idiotic that a statement like that would be made when all these consent decrees do is get you back to normalcy oh. or to excellence as a police. Department. No, what it, who would not want that?
1: <laughs> Angela, what it gets you to is protect and serve the people. Jeff Sessions wants to protect and serve the police officers. And, most, and the
5: other piece is it's the dismantling of the Department of Justice. I think Jeff Sessions has consistently tried to do that, and addressing and pulling back from these consent decrees is a way to do that. I mean, a consent decree is an agreement between the federal government and a locality. If a locality is saying, we want you to come in, and now the federal government is saying they don't want to, that's a serious problem. And the federal government are the folks to do that, because the locality has shown a pattern and practice of unlawfulness in the department. So if the federal department can't come in, who's going to come in and look at those? And It's the
1: job of the DOJ to (laughs) oversee and to invest Enforce
5: the law. But they don't want to do right. that anymore. Well, what happened to state rights, though, in this regard? I mean, the Republicans <laughs> are the, tra- <laughs> the right, trouble. Exactly, exactly. They want state rights and local control, except when they don't. And in this case, they don't. They want the police to go back to what they believe to be some uh, normalcy, we believe is ab- <laughs> abnormalcy, if you will.
4: And I think it's important to note that the Actually, implementing the terms of these consent decrees is making us all safer, right? When exactly. you do not Inherently feel like safer. right, right, <laughs> and I'm talking about the community and the police. So I, I, I just think that it is disingenuous you to know, say that you are working on um, the relationship between law enforcement and community, and you're not willing to actually. Do what needs to be done and
1: what the community has asked you to do. A peaceful protest turned deadly. 37 year old black man was shot and killed by Detroit's police. His hands are in the air. And you still get shot by the cop.
0: Oh my God! Please don't tell me he
1: said. We're not going to let hate to find us. Race is a big part of this. If truly all lives matter, then all lives need to matter equally. What we require is action. What we require is accountability. If we understand that black lives
0: do matter. We will keep focused on this issue. News one now every weekday morning at seven on TV one. All right. So that was um, from News One Now with Roland Martin. That was from uh, April 10th. That was from uh, April 10th. And they dealt with um, the DOJ, the Department of Justice, okay? And the consent decrees. Also, the DOJ wants to uh, ramp up the war on drugs again, which had been... Uh, winding down if you actually do the research, okay? Not if you deal with anecdotal information, but if you actually do the research, the um, war on drugs have been winding down. We know that uh, when you look at the Department of Justice report on prisons from uh, uh, December 2016, we saw that the uh, U.S. prison population was the lowest it's being in 20 years. OK, a lot of people don't know this. All right. Um, Newsweek dot com had an article about this. <coughs> Newsweek.com dot com had an article about this. AOL dot com Jet Magazine as well. Um, Newsweek dot com's article is entitled The U.S. Prison Population Exceeded One and a Half Million in 2015. Um, The U.S. prison population exceeded one and a half million in 2015. The U.S. US prison population failed the most in almost four decades to 1.53 million inmates in 2015, resulting in the lowest rate of incarceration in the generation, the Department of Justice said on Thursday. OK, this and this came out. um, This was from uh, December 29, 2016, December 29, 2016. Okay, just a second, because we're going to go live here on Facebook Live uh, also. All right, so uh, on uh, those watching on, uh, we're going to go live on YouTube. Those watching on Facebook, we posted the uh, information for the live international webinar. Um, Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school starts this Thursday. You can go ahead and register for that. We'll talk about that some more. Okay, but this thing with the Department of Justice is deep, and uh, I'm going to go to a couple articles here. All right, shout-out to people watching us on YouTube. All right, so we're broadcasting on YouTube also, our YouTube channel. Um, And the, the DOJ under Jeff Sessions, and this is something that a lot of people who work in civil rights, who work in criminal justice reform, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, they were afraid of, okay, under Jeff Sessions. So, NewsOne.com and uh, the Washington Post have a couple articles dealing with how the uh, Department of Justice under Donald Trump, headed by Jefferson Borgard Sessions III, okay, white segregationists out of Alabama, uh, how they want to ramp up the war on drugs. Now, despite near historic crime lows, despite near Historic crime lows, uh, Jeff Sessions seeks to renew a racially biased policy that devastated black families. Jeff Sessions seeks to renew a racially biased policy that devastated uh, black families, okay? And Donald Trump continues uh, to um, misstate the national crime rates, okay? He continues to uh, misstate the national crime rate and the national murder rate. If you look at the article from the Washington Post, from uh, I think it was in February, uh, Trump makes false statement uh, about U.S. murder rate to Sheriff's Group. Trump makes false statement about U.S. murder rate to Sheriff's Group. Okay, and uh, in this in this article, uh, this is back when. Uh, this is from uh, February seventh, two thousand seventeen. So Donald Trump was meeting with members of the National Sheriffs Association. Okay, and when he when when he was talking to them, he lied and said that uh, he said that the murder rate uh, is the highest it's been, uh, I guess, in forty five to forty seven years. And that's not true. the 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 national murder rate is at about a forty five year low. Is not the highest it's been in 45 years when you had um, uh, and uh, and also uh, crimes nationwide, violent crimes, things like this are at about a 45 year low. Now, you've had an uptick in like Chicago, Baltimore, things like this, but nationwide violent crimes and murders are almost at historic lows. They're at about 45 year lows. Read this article from The Washington Post. Trump makes false statement about U.S. murder rate to sheriff's groups. Okay, so if he makes it uh, a false statement like that to sheriff's group, sheriff's groups, then he'll make false statements like that uh, in interviews, uh, et cetera. Okay, and then when Jeff Sessions was um, when Jeff Sessions was uh, took his oath of office right Uh, after he was uh, approved by the Senate, he echoed these false claims about the crime rate. Okay. Now this is what I was warning people about. And this is an example how elections have consequences. Now the question I asked all the Negroes and pseudo intellectual Negroes who told you don't vote, don't vote for Hillary Clinton, vote for Jill Stein, write your name in, write Bernie Sanders name in, all type of idiotic things like this. What are they telling you to do now? What are they telling you to do now? Now Attorney General Jeff Sessions made criminal justice hardliner stephen h cook uh one of his top lieutenants at the Justice Department, signaling a return to racially biased uh to the racially biased war on drugs policy that a turn to the racially biased war on drugs policy that um led to mass incarceration Uh, and this was reported by the Washington Post this article is from news1.com news1.com April 10th 2017 Um, do do, do you believe Hillary Clinton had absolutely and if you actually read the policies, you would know this did you read did uh, uh, did you read their policies if you actually read their policies I told people over and over and over again I said go to donaldjtrump.com Read his 13, 14 policies. Go to Hillaryclinton.com. Read her 36 policies. Hillary Clinton had a criminal justice reform program. Donald Trump had no criminal justice reform program. Donald Trump did not talk about criminal justice reform. Donald Trump and, and Jeff Session and Donald Trump and Mike Pence did not even want to deal with the, the issue of implicit bias in policing. Uh, Mike Pence was on the campaign trail, and he said that Donald Trump and I are tired of hearing about implicit bias. He said, we think there's too much talk about implicit bias. They don't even want to deal with this. If you actually go and read the policies, if you actually listen to the speeches, one of the first speeches Hillary Clinton gave was on criminal justice reform. If you get past the perception, if you actually do the fact checking, we did numerous fact checking weeks on end on this show. They're archived. We have over 700 podcast episodes of our show. Go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. I can document what I've done. I can document what I say. I can document the information. If you actually go research this, you'll find out that she would have continued the winding down of the war on drugs and uh, moving away from the privatized prisons, et cetera. This is fact. This is not perception. I can prove what I say. Go research this and go check out her, her website is still up HillaryClinton.com, hillaryclinton.com. It's about policy, not personality. People got caught up on personality and they're about to declare war on your natural black ass. People got caught up on personality as opposed to focusing on policy. And this was a this was a critical mistake. This is what happens when you lack strategy, you don't understand history, and you don't understand politics. You had correct. You, you, Donald Trump told you he wanted to be the law and order candidate. If you understand the history of law and order, that goes back to Richard Nixon in 1968 when Richard Nixon ran on that platform, and he ran. As a backlash to the Black Power Movement, to the Civil Rights Movement, to the Civil Rights Act in 1964, the Voting Rights Act in 1965, there was an entire backlash to that movement. Donald Trump ran as a backlash to two terms of President Barack Obama, the first African-American president. He ran as a backlash to to, to the Black Lives Matter movement. He ran as a backlash to the police reform movement, all that. He ran as a backlash to that. Now, if you actually do the research, and we've dealt with this here on this show, all these shows are archived, go back and listen to them. Roger Ailes, who was the founder of Fox News and got ousted out of Fox News for sexual harassment and had and Fox News had to pay millions of dollars to settle a sexual harassment lawsuit, Roger Ailes was a campaign advisor to Richard Nixon in, in the 1968 presidential campaign, okay, Richard Nixon's platform was law and order, and law and order translates into protect white people and lock up black people. That's what law and order translates into, if you actually understand history and do the research. Roger Ailes is also a good friend and was a campaign advisor, either formally or informally, to Donald Trump. So towards the end of the campaign, Donald Trump came out and said he wants to be the law and order candidate. He ran on a very pro-police platform. Not only did he run on a pro-police platform, not only has he said negative disparaging things about Black Lives Matter, not only was he basically against consent decrees and things like this, he actually said that the police need more authority and they need more power, not less power. Okay, this is Donald J. Trump. So what you see being implemented, you could see the seeds being planted if you actually listen to his campaign speeches. I saw over 100 campaign speeches by Donald Trump. I saw over 100 campaign speeches by Donald Trump, and I went and read his policies. I saw dozens of interviews by him on top of that. So if you actually looked at this and connected the dots, you could see this coming. We got caught up on personality As opposed to as opposed to focusing on policy. And you can't make that mistake again. You can't you cannot make that mistake again. And when you have bad information, you make bad decisions. When you have bad information, you make bad decisions. And this is a a mistake that black people make, and you had these stupid-ass Negroes like Dr. Eddie Glaude on national TV, on MSNBC, saying he wasn't going to vote in the election, telling people don't vote for Hillary Clinton, and stupid-ass Negroes like him, he can't tell you what to do now. They're about to declare war on your ass. He can't tell you what to do now. Okay, so according to the Washington Post, Jeff Sessions and Stephen Cook are formulating a policy to step up drug and gun prosecutions. They're formulating a policy to step up drug and gun prosecutions as well as enforcing mandatory minimum sentence. Well, under President Obama, there was a move away from this. If you actually do the research, there was a move away from this. There was a winding down of the war on drugs. There's a move away from the mandatory minimums, move away from the privatized prison, all of this stuff. There was, a, there was a winding down of the war on drugs in the President Obama. I did a, I did a presentation, um, okay, on, on YouTube, Jackson said, I definitely respect what you're saying. Post, post your comment again, Jackson. And please, people, do some research, because I can listen to what people say. I can tell what they haven't read. I can tell they haven't done the research. OK, read this article here from ThinkProgress.org. Jeff Sessions began his term as attorney general, fear mongering about crime and Muslims. Now, if you knew about Jeff Sessions prior to the election, you could see this stuff coming because Jeff Sessions were at, at, at one point. He was a campaign advisor to Donald Trump. And in Alabama, if I remember correctly, he headed up the uh, Donald Trump campaign in Alabama. If you knew about this guy, this is the same guy who in 1986, he, it was deemed that he was too racist to be a federal judge. He was nominated by Ronald Reagan to be a federal judge in 1986. And Coretta Scott King, the widow of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., wrote a letter. She wrote a nine-page letter okay, to the, to the Senate Confirmation uh, Committee stating why Jeff Sessions should not be a federal judge and how him becoming a federal judge would undo Dr. King's legacy. This is who Jeff Sessions is. You got to study this stuff. Okay, so according to, uh, so uh, look at this article from thinkprogress.org. Okay, uh, blah, blah, blah. There are saying that there were so many black people. Yeah, there were so many black people, and I think some of these Negroes got paid off to mislead us. And we should totally ostracize them. We should, see, there's no penalty for selling us out. So you have these stupid ass Negroes who say nonsense like this and say don't vote or 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 you have idiots who say things like, oh, well, not voting is a vote. Okay, not voting may be a strategy, but it's a stupid strategy. Not voting may be a strategy, but it's a bad strategy. And now they can't tell you what to do, because if you actually pay attention, you see All this stuff coming into place. You see all these pieces falling in the falling into place. And it's gonna be worse than we thought it was gonna be. If you actually research this. Okay, so according to the Washington Post, Jeff Sessions and uh Stephen Cook are formulating a policy to step up drug and gun prosecutions as well as enforcing mandatory minimums. After working as a police officer, Stephen H. Cook became a federal prosecutor and served as president of the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys. Okay, now, most Negroes who sat at home and didn't vote, they don't even know who the hell Stephen Cook is. Most of them don't know who most of them didn't know who Jeff Sessions was before he became attorney general. A lot of them don't know who Jeff Sessions is now. But this is an example of how public of how policy is going to impact your life. This is an example of how policy is going to impact your life because politics is two main ways to understand politics. Number one, the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources. The legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources. Number two, the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. The the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, uh, treaties, and amendments. Their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. Politics impacts every aspect of your life. Politics impacts every aspect of your life. So what we have to do is go beyond just voter education, because I'm involved. I'm a chair member of Grits and Politics here in Detroit, and we teach how politics impacts every aspect of your life. Okay, and, and teach people how to understand policy. And you have to go beyond just voter education. You have to have training sessions to teach people how politics impacts every aspect of their life and, 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 and how the writing of laws deals with the redistribution of scarce wealth power and resources. Okay, so after working as a police officer, Stephen Cook became a federal prosecutor and served as president of the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys. He rejects the growing chorus of vo- of voices calling for criminal justice reform. At a Washington Post criminal justice forum in 2016, Stephen H. Cook said the justice system is, quote, working exactly as designed, working exactly as designed, end quote. Now, it may be working exactly as designed but it's not working for African-Americans and, and poor people and people of color. Okay? So because it's working as, as maybe originally designed, does not mean that's a good thing. You've had significant reforms under the Obama administration, and Stephen Cook and Jeff Sessions were against these reforms. With the onslaught of the crack ep- epidemic in the 1980s, Congress passed laws intended to get tough on crime. Former President Bill Clinton enacted a crime bill that included a three-strike rule that mandated life sentences. Now, what this article doesn't tell you and what we've dealt with before on this show is the crime bill, the 1994 crime bill that Clinton signed in the law. First of all, Clinton didn't write the crime bill. The crime bill was written by Senator Joe Biden, who became Barack Obama's vice president. Joe Biden worked on the crime bill for six years, okay? Clinton signed the crime bill September 13th, 1994, his second year in office. 87% of the people who went to prison under the two terms of Bill Clinton, they went under state law, not federal law. The crime bill was not state law. The crime bill was federal law. 13% went to prison under the crime bill, federal law. In the late 80s and early 90s, States had already started passing longer, harsher sentences before 1994, before the crime bill was signed into office. States had already started passing longer, harsher sentences in the late 80s and early 1990s, okay? This is what a lot of people don't understand. This is what a lot of people don't know. So they try to put all the blame on the crime bill. Now, you got to study the history of this. The The foundation of the school-to-prison pipeline was was laid in 1986 under under uh, uh, President Ronald Reagan with the, uh, with the uh, drug-free zone and enforcement policy, something like that, a drug-free zone enforcement policy. That put police officers in the school in 1986 who were then going to start to disproportionately arrest African-Americans and Hispanic students. That, com- that comes from uh, Ronald Reagan and his war on drugs that he declared in 1982. The original war on drugs declared by Richard Nixon was June 17, 1971. And he lies in front of Congress, in front of his testimony in Congress, just like Harry J. Anslinger, who was the first chairman of the National Narcotics Commission, just like Harry J. Anslinger lied in front of, his, in front, in front of Congress in 1937. And this is why marijuana became uh, illegal in 1937, because prior to that, marijuana was legal. It was made illegal because of a lie. So uh, uh, um, you have Richard Nixon, who declared his war on drugs based upon a lie. And if you look at the uh, article from Harper's uh, Weekly, April of 2016, uh, the article by Dan Baum, B-A-U-M, called Legalize It All, in that article, uh, he interviewed uh, John Ehrlichman. Now, uh, uh, in that article, he talks about an interview that he did with John Ehrlichman in 1994, I think it was. So John Ehrlichman was Richard Nixon's domestic policy advisor. And he did 18 uh, months in prison behind the Watergate scandal, his involvement in Watergate. Okay, so John Ehrlichman tells Dan Baum, who's a journalist, he tells him, he said, do you really want to know what the war on drugs was about? And he said the war on drugs was uh, basically an attack on the anti-war left, the hippies who were protesting against the Vietnam War and the African-American community. He said we knew that we cannot make it illegal to be against the war or to be black. But he said by associating marijuana with the hippies and the anti-war movement and associating heroin with the African-American community, he said we could then raid their offices of their organizations. We could lock up their leaders. We could do surveillance on them, all different types of things like this. This is what the war on drugs was about which And in, in, in the war on was declared by Richard Nixon, Mr. Law and Order himself, who, came, who who became president in 1968 as a backlash to the black power movement, as a backlash to the civil rights movement, as a backlash to the changes and in the, in the, in the uh, protests against Vietnam, all that stuff. He became president as a backlash of that, and Donald Trump became president, he got support, as a backlash to the Black Lives Matter movement. Police reforms, what some people call anti police movement, all that stuff, Uh, two terms of President Barack Obama, the first African American president, etc. Now, he also got help from Russia. He got by with a little help from his friends, the Russian hacking, and also voter suppression, okay? And then voter intimidation as well, okay? And Trump won Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. The three battleground states, he won Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania by a total of 78,000 votes. He won those three states by less than one-tenth of a percentage point. He won won Michigan by two-tenths of a percentage point. He won Michigan by 10,704 votes. Jill Stein got 50,000 votes out of Michigan. You figure that out. Jill Stein, who didn't have a snowball's chance in hell, who was at the uh, uh, 10th anniversary rush of the day uh, TV uh, 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 gala in December of 2015, sitting at Vladimir Putin's table, sitting across the table from Vladimir Putin. Next to Vladimir Putin was Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who became Donald Trump's national security advisor for 24 days. You put the pieces together. Why did why did Jill Stein, who very rarely says anything negatively, about Vladimir Putin. Why did she stay in the race all the way to the end when she was polling at 2%? So it was clear she wasn't going to win. Why did she stay in the race all the way to the win, end? Is it, is it possible? Go back and listen to the podcast. I think it was in February I did, I did, a, I did a show exposing Jill Stein. And I said, is it possible that Jill Stein stayed into, stayed in the race until the end? Because it was clear she had no chance of winning. Is it possible she stayed in the race until the end to purposely take votes away from Hillary Clinton in key battleground states to then help Donald Trump win, which ultimately would help Vladimir Putin. Is that possible? Because when I look at the evidence, that's what it looks like to me. Now, also, Christopher Steele, who is the uh, ex-MI6 agent, who was the one who put together the 35-page dossier on Donald Trump, he turns over he turns that dossier over to the FBI in summer 2016. When you read the article from buzzfeed.com and uh other articles about this, Jill Stein's name is in that dossier because they because they're trying to figure out who paid for her to to fly back and forth to Russia. Who paid for her accommodations when she was in Russia? Why was she there? So this House of Cards is about to fall. One of the pieces fell today when it came out that there was a Pfizer warrant on Carter Page, who's a former advisor for Donald Trump. This is a breaking news story from The Washington Post, posted at 7.11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, those watching on Facebook, share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in. Those watching on Facebook, share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in. Uh, we posted the link. To our uh, for our live international webinar, I'm doing a live international webinar coming up this Thursday, understanding uh, this Thursday, April 13th, 2017. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Okay, you can go ahead and register that for that. It's a four it's a four week course. It's uh, uh, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time each Thursday uh, for four weeks. It's totally going to blow your way. We deal with ancient Kemet. We deal with Nubia, Ethiopia. Uh, we deal with uh, Ghana, Songhai, Mali. We deal with the Moors, uh, the 800-year occupation of, of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. We deal with African people being indigenous to this land, being here at least 51,700 years. We deal with how the, what what the Moors introduced in Europe is going to set up Columbus uh, uh, setting sail August. 3rd, 1492 on, on the Nina, the Penton, the Santa Maria, and how Columbus helps to lay the foundation for slavery, racism, capitalism, and the exploitation of indigenous people, and opens up the so-called new world to other European nations uh, coming in. Okay, at Eyes on Media. How you doing, brother? So we're going to post a link again. Now, those watching on YouTube, uh, go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. go to African history com. You can, um, watch the, um, broadcast. I mean, you can, uh, um, register for it there and get more information. Okay. So let's continue with this. This is from the article from news com that they picked up from the Washington post. Attorney general wants a return to war on drugs that led to mass incarceration. Attorney general wants a return to war on drugs that led to mass incarceration. Despite near historic crime lows, Jeff Sessions seeks to renew a racially biased policy that devastated black families. All right, now, um, and also when you look at the article from, um, (coughs) excuse me, when you look at the article from uh, thinkprogress.org, Jeff Sessions began his term as Attorney General fear mongering about crime and Muslims. America isn't as scary and terrible as Trump and Sessions would have you believe. They're trying to scare the hell out of people, lie about the crime rate, so then they can craft, so then they can draft laws based upon this false narrative that they're telling. Okay, uh, Jeff Sessions began his first public comment after being sworn in uh, as Attorney General with a boilerplate thank you to President Trump and an acknowledgement of the need to encourage Justice Department workers. He then immediately pivoted to echoing falsehoods his new boss, Donald Trump, has been pushing about crime and the threat posed by Muslims. Okay? Now, about 13% (coughs) excuse me, about 13% of um, Muslims in the U.S. are African American. Okay? I think it's about 10%, about 10% are African American. About 23% of Muslims in the U.S. are are, are black. About 10% are African Americans. Now, Jeff Sessions said, quote, we have a crime problem. I wish the rise rise that we are seeing in crime in America today were some sort of aberration or a blip. My best judgment, having been involved in criminal law enforcement for many years, is that this is a dangerous permanent trend that places the health and safety of the American people at risk. Now, some cities like Chicago and New Orleans are suffering from short term spikes in violence. This is true. But Jeff Sessions claim about rising crime being a permanent trend is demonstrably false nationwide. He's lying. He's lying. Now Sessions' claim is also false with, with respect to crime in the in US cities in particular. Days after Donald Trump was inaugurated, he threatened to send the Feds into Chicago to take care of the carnage occurring there. In his first comments as as attorney general, Jeff Sessions did not indicate whether he supports using federal power in in that manner, which would likely be unconstitutional. But Sessions did express support for the national security rationale Trump has used to justify his Muslim ban, which indefinitely barred refugees and nationals from seven Muslim majority uh, countries from entering the uh, country. Okay, all right. So check out this article. There's more to it, but these guys are just these guys are just lying. These guys are just lying. All right. So uh, the crime-fighting tactic uh, that led to mass incarceration. Uh, three strikes and you're out, mandatory minimums, things like this. Um, cost taxpayers $80 billion a year. Now, the criminal justice system warehoused African Americans in prison for drug offenses 10 times more than, than white Americans, even though African Americans and white Americans use drugs at, at roughly the same rate. Okay? So you have over policing when it comes to African Americans. You have racial profiling, et cetera. But but, but we use drugs at basically the same rate As white Americans Now African Americans also received Disproportionately longer prison sentences For minor drug offenses Elected officials on the left And right eventually saw A need for reform Okay there was, a, there was An effort for prison reform And criminal justice reform in the Senate In Congress that stalled right, Excuse me In Congress that stalled Um, Elected officials on the left and right Eventually saw a need for reform Former President Barack Obama led the way Reducing the sentences of 1,715 low-level Nonviolent drug offenders To address the disparities Including crack versus powder Cocaine sentencing Which devastated African American community Bipartisan criminal justice reform Legislation was moving through Congress in 2015, bipartisan criminal justice reform legislation was moving through through Congress in 2015, but tough on crime lawmakers stepped on the brakes. The Washington Post pointed to Jeff Sessions, who was then the uh, uh, then a uh, a senator, a U.S. Senator in Alabama, as one of the fiercest reform opponents. Jeff Sessions helped put the brakes on the bipartisan criminal justice reform efforts that was taking place in Congress, and now he's Attorney General. The national crime rate has dropped to about half of what it was in 1991 when it was at its at peak, according to the Brennan Center, Brennan Center for Justice, yet Jeff Sessions and others warn that a spike in places like Chicago signals a dangerous upswing. Now Stephen H. Cook, uh, who's one of Jeff Sessions' lieutenants in the Department of Justice, uh, um, uh, was among those who testified at congressional hearings that reforming the criminal justice system would be a mistake. He said, quote, if hard line means that my focus is on protecting communities from violent felons and drug traffickers, then I'm guilty. I don't think that's I don't think that's hard line. I think that's exactly what the American people expect of their Department of Justice. Okay? So this is why elections have consequences. This is why you have to call your Congress people and U.S. senators on certain bills, criminal justice reform, things like this, to tell them, vote no on this, vote yes on this, because they pay attention to that. We saw, we saw that example with the um, Affordable Health Care Act and the attempt to repeal it. And people were calling and shut down the uh, congressional switchboard. They were emailing, they were calling, and and senators and 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 members of the U.S. House of Representatives. They keep a log on how many calls do they get that say vote no, how many calls do they get that say vote yes, how many emails they get things like this. They get and 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 and, and usually their vote is based upon that. When there's overwhelming outpouring people people were showing up at town hall meetings furious people were calling things like this that has a big impact see we we have to understand the different ways to engage download the document indivisible in the indivisible go to indivisibleguide.com indivisibleguide.com download indivisible because a lot of these people organize based upon that okay there are prof- I'm not sure what you said now check out this article from Washington Post how Jeff Sessions wants to bring back the war on drugs August, April 8th 2017 how Jeff Sessions wants to bring back the war on drugs because in the article um, in the section okay well first of all under President Obama they had an initiative called Smart on Crime Okay. President Obama, the first sitting president to visit a federal prison, launched an ambitious clemency initiative to release certain drug offenders from prison early. And Attorney General Attorney General Eric Holder told his prosecutors in an effort to make punishments more fairly fit the crime to stop charging low level nonviolent drug offenders with offenses that impose severe mandatory sentences. Okay, This happened under the Obama administration All these ignorant-ass Negroes Who sit up here and say Obama didn't do anything for black people When did you go research this information? When did you go research this information? The people So, And then When you see Jeff Sessions And Donald Trump Putting things in place to undo President Obama did How can you undo something that wasn't done In the first place? Following your line of thinking which is not consistent with facts and reality. See, we have to go research this because we cannot let something like this happen again. President Obama, the first sitting president to visit a a federal prison, launched an ambitious clemency initiative to release certain drug offenders from prison early. Okay, and these are people who have been in prison 20, 30 years. Okay, going back to the 80s, going back to the 90s, things like this. And Attorney General Eric Holder told his prosecutors, in an effort to make punishments more fairly fit the crime, to stop charging low-level, nonviolent drug offenders with offenses with offenses that impose severe mandatory sentences. Under Jeff Sessions, they're about to they're about to reverse that and try to and try to give people as much time as possible and go after low-level, nonviolent drug offenders. Stephen, Stephen uh, Cook said, he says, there's no such thing as a nonviolent drug offender. Now, um, Stephen Cook called this strategy outlined in the August 2000, uh, oh, oh, sorry, uh, President Barack Obama called his strategy outlined in an August 2013 report, Smart on Crime. Okay? The strategy was called Smart on Crime. Stephen Cook called it Soft on Crime. And he said the Chattanooga case, uh, uh, early in the article, they talk about a Chattanooga case as a drug drug case. He said the case would have been much more difficult to make, quote, if possible at all, end quote, in recent years. Okay, now Stephen Cook has also dismissed the idea that there is a such thing as a nonviolent drug offender. He said, quote, drug trafficking is inherently violent. Drug traffickers are dealing in heavy cash business. Um, he said this on uh, the, uh, the uh, on Bill O'Reilly's show, The O'Reilly Factor, last year. Bill O'Reilly has lost 80 advertisers as of yesterday. He's lost 80 advertisers from his show behind the article that appeared in the New York Times two weekends ago, about $13 million. Uh, he and Fox News has paid out to settle sexual harassment lawsuits to five women, and uh, Lisa Bloom, who is an attorney for one of the women, Uh, who's an attorney for um, uh, a a woman who has filed a sexual harassment lawsuit against them. She says there's other women as well. Okay. Uh, But Stephen Cook said they can't resolve disputes in court. They resolve the disputes on the street and they resolve them through violence. Now, um, uh, uh, Cook and Je- Stephen Cook and Jeff Sessions have also fought the want- the winds of change on Capitol Hill when a bipartisan group of lawmakers recently tried but failed to pass the first significant bill bill on criminal justice reform in decades. After GOP lawmakers became nervous about passing legislation that might seem soft on crime, Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, son of a Mitch declined to bring the bill to the floor for a vote. The, the, the criminal justice reform that got bipartisan support, it came to a stall. Now, Jeff Sessions was the main reason that the bill did not pass, said uh, uh, Inayami, uh Chetier, the director of the justice program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Okay? Quote, he came in at the last minute and really torpedoed the bipartisan effort, end quote. Now, uh, now that he is attorney general, Jeff Sessions has signed a signaled a new direction. As his first step, Sessions told his prosecutors uh, in a memo last month, February of, uh, uh, well, um, March of 2017, to, be- to begin using "Quote unquote, quote unquote, every tool we have, language that evoked the strategy from the drug war of loading up charges to lengthen sentences. Begin using every tool we have. Now, this is language that evoked the strategy from the war on drugs of loading up charges to lengthen sentences. Read the read the full article, WashingtonPost.com, how Jeff Sessions wants to bring back." war on drugs, how Jeff Sessions wants to bring back the war on drugs. Now, we know that with the consent decrees in Baltimore, we know that a federal judge um, ruled last Friday, uh, the federal judge approved the consent decree with the Baltimore Police Department last Friday, turning it into a court order. The judge blocked a request from the Trump Justice Department to delay the agreement, because Jeff Sessions is against police consent decrees. He's against them, okay? Uh, Attorney Attorney General Jeff Sessions says an uh, Obama-era agreement between the Department of Justice and Baltimore to bring reform to to, to its police force could make the city less safe. That's not true. Sessions blasted the decision, He said, quote, today, a federal court entered a consent decree that will require the court and a highly paid monitor to govern every detail of the Baltimore Police Department functions for the foreseeable future. OK, this this decree was negotiated during a rushed process by the previous administration and signed only days before they left office. While the Department of Justice continues to fully support police reform in Baltimore, what support have you what support have you given to police reform in Baltimore? I have grave concerns that some provisions of this decree will reduce the lawful powers of the police department and result in a less safe city. OK, now, Jeff Sessions, DOJ, have filed a request in the U.S. District Court of the District of Maryland on Monday. OK, last week, Monday, um, asking for 90 more days to review the uh, consent decree with with the Baltimore Police Department. Now, when you look at the article from April 6th, 2017, from nbcnews.com, dot com, Justice Department cites grave concerns about Baltimore police reform. OK, um, they talk about how I think it's in this article. They talk about how the police chief in. Um, Baltimore is for the consent decree, and so is the mayor. The new mayor, Catherine Pugh, okay, who was a um, state representative. So I think she was a state senator or state representative. Signs of a Justice Department turnaround on a sweeping set of police reforms in Baltimore became more apparent on Thursday with a federal lawyer telling a judge the Trump administration now has grave concerns about a consent decree negotiated under former president Barack Obama the lawyer John Gore now John Gore if I remember correctly John Gore is going to head up the civil rights division of the Department of Justice but John Gore doesn't have a good background or good record on civil rights they're putting people in charge of these departments that are the antipathy of what the department represents, and they're putting them in place to destroy these departments. Um, Okay. Uh, uh, Reformers, including Baltimore's police commissioner, uh, uh, say that the changes will improve safety by rebuilding trust between the police and the public. Baltimore's consent decree is a result of the Justice Department investigation prompted uh, uh, by the rioting that erupted following the April 2015 death of Freddie Gray. While in police custody, uh, investigators from the Division of Civil Rights found a pattern of unconstitutional stops, searches, and arrests of African-American residents and the use of unnecessary force against them. The investigators traced the problems to a 1990s-era crime-fighting strategy aimed at the drug trade this goes back to the war on drugs okay so you got you got to study the history of this and and how these policies um had a negative impact all the social ills that we are dealing with today basically all the social ills we're dealing with today are the side effects usually of bad policies of bad laws the social ills that we're dealing with. The reason why you have one of the main reasons why you have a lack of African-Americans, uh, African-American males in the home, African-American fathers in the home is because of the war on drugs. You have the war on drugs. You also had automation put into uh, factories, which eliminated a lot of low level positions that we got. And that fathers got and grandfathers got when they moved up here from Mississippi and Alabama, things like this. Okay. But, but, A lot of the social ills that we deal with are the side effects of bad policies written in the law by politicians. This is why we have to have um, training and we have to have sessions and forums that teach our people how politics impacts every aspect of your life. The water you drink, the food you eat, the air you breathe is all regulated by law. It's all regulated by policies. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, less than 4% of the sidewalk stops. Okay, let me back. The, the, they found, uh, so, in the, um, the DOJ report of the Baltimore Police Department, I think it was like 163 pages, they found hundreds of thousands of pedestrian stops for minor offenses with minimal or no suspicion of law breaking all concentrated in African-American neighborhoods. Because when you read the DOJ report of Baltimore, they tell you that there were two Baltimores. There were two Baltimore's. There was a Baltimore where white people lived, and there's a section of Baltimore where white people lived, and they got along with the police, and basically everything was fine. And then there was the African-American section of Baltimore where you had all, all, all of these offenses taking place. They found hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pedestrian stops for minor offenses with minimal or no suspicion of law breaking, all concentrated in black neighborhoods. Less than four percent of the sidewalk stops resulted in arrests. Less than four percent. Let me listen to this. In the Department of Justice, when they investigated the patterns and practices of the Baltimore Baltimore Police Department, they found hundreds of thousands. Of pedestrian stops for minor offenses with minimal or no suspicion of law breaking all all of this was concentrated in the African American neighborhoods less than 4% of the sidewalk stops resulted in an arrest so they were racially profiling the people less than 4% of the sidewalk stops actually resulted in an arrest Um Glenda Laddie said, I heard Bernie Sanders wrote the bill for black men to go to jail for minor drug offenses and Bill Clinton signed it. Bernie Sanders didn't write the bill that was Bernie Sanders voted for the crime bill in ninety four and Bernie Sanders was a member of the US House of Representatives. Bernie Sanders had been in Congress for twenty five years. He started in the US House of Representatives in nineteen ninety one. Then in 2007, he went to the U.S. Senate. It was Senator Joe Biden who wrote the crime bill. Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden, who became Barack Obama's vice president, worked on that crime bill for six years. Joe Biden was the chief architect and main sponsor of the 1994 crime bill. That was Senator Joe Biden. It was Joe Biden who said we have to have harsher, longer sentences in the crime bill. To get Republicans to vote for it That was that was Joe Biden So African American drivers Suffered similarly They were disproportionately pulled over For traffic stops And searched for drugs Even though officers found Illegal substances More often in searches involving white drivers Go read the Go read the The, the Baltimore police, uh, the, the uh, report from the DOJ about Baltimore. African Americans, African American drivers were disproportionately pulled over for traffic stops and searched for drugs in Baltimore, even though officers found illegal substances more often in searches of white drivers the civil rights division of the department of justice, which has negotiated similar arrangements in two dozen other cities. This is under president Barack Obama because under president Obama, there were more investigations into the patterns and practices of the police departments than any previous administration. They had about, they had 24 of them. There were more investigations into the patterns and practices of police departments. Under the Obama administration, than any previous uh, uh, administration. Now you got Jeff Sessions, who's against these investigations, who's against these consent decrees, and you got Donald Trump, who's against them. And Donald Trump was invo- endorsed by the Fraternal Order Police as a presidential candidate, which is the largest police union in the country. They have three hundred thousand members. The Civil Rights Division, which which has negotiated. Similar arrangements in two dozen other cities threatened to sue the city of Baltimore uh, unless it agreed to reform itself. Baltimore agreed, and they sign, and, 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 and signed and uh, signed a consent decree that will put the city under a, court, a court-appointed monitor. Okay, because when they have these consent decrees, there's federal oversight over these consent decrees to make sure that the police department is doing the reforms that they agreed to. Now, such deals typically last years and cost cost many millions of dollars. So there was one um, city council member in Ferguson, I'm not Ferguson, Baltimore. We talked about Ferguson a couple nights ago. There's one city council member who estimated that it would cost between 75 to 100 million dollars 75 to 100 million dollars to implement all of the reforms that needed to take place. We have to understand elections have consequences. Local, state, and national. Elections have consequences. Now download the seat. go to rolandmartin.com, rolandsmartin.com, rolandsmartin.com and download the um the um, download the um, agenda that the Congressional Black Caucus um, put together called We Have a Lot to Lose. We have a lot to lose because there are elements in there that every African-American organization across the country Whether you are a civil rights organization, whether you're Black Lives Matter, whether you are a block club, what have you, you can take elements from that and create a powerful, a powerful uh, agenda. Okay, you can create a powerful agenda. Let me set my DVR up because I'm missing the uh, I'm missing Brian Williams on MSNBC. The last word. And I missed uh, Lawrence O'Donnell cause he was talking about this other story we're about to get to. And I miss, uh, I saw part of the Rachel Maddow show. So I need to set up my DVR to, uh, record these so I can go back and watch them. So just give me a minute here. Cause they're dealing with this uh, other story we're about to get into about Carter page. And as I've been telling people, the walls are closing in on Donald Trump. I don't think he's going to make it to the end of the year. I think he's going to be forced to resign. <clears throat> He does not want to be uh, impeached. He does not want to be put on trial because impeachment does not mean that you're removed from office. It means that you're put on trial. The last thing a pathological liar wants to happen is that you put on trial under oath penalty of perjury. That's the last thing a pathological liar wants to happen. Okay. All right. So. um, Yeah. I had yeah, I had it bound also, uh Greg. That is a powerful document. It's a hundred twenty five page agenda. We have a lot to lose, solutions uh for, Af- for solutions for twenty first century African American families. Then also download indivisible, download the indivisible document as well. Okay. Uh, Vernon Thomas said we should have formed our own party to back them off President Obama. Well, you can have a party within a party. If you study the Tea Party, the Tea Party was not a separate party. Tea Party was very effective. They were a they were a party within the Republican Party. They were further to the right than a lot of Republicans, and it pulled the Republican Party further to the right. Okay, if you look at uh, so we we can have a party within the Democratic Party. We can have a force. Within the Democratic Party, Where we have to understand politics. We have to uh, uh, have strategy. We have to have an agenda. Okay. Download Indivisible. Go to indivisibleguy.com Download that because that is something that's being used right now. And then when you deal with the Department of Justice, right? When you deal with the DOJ and these laws, things that they want, things that they don't want to look at is the cause causes of crime. Okay? Because when we look at the um uh we talked about this um I think on yesterday's show or the day before yesterday. You look you look at you look at the study from um you look at the study called the cost of segregation. The cost of segregation. This study deals with how billions and lost wages and thousands of young people uh, without the education they need to fulfill their uh, potential, uh, this, this, this deals with the, the cost of segregation in America, okay, and how, and, and how segregation uh, costs America billions of dollars each year. It costs uh, African Americans uh, a lot of lost opportunity. It increases the homicide rate in Chicago. Uh, segregation increases the homicide rate by 30% okay it also uh leads to a a reduction in the number of african americans with bachelor's degrees and 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 also reduction in the number of people in general with uh bachelor degrees and the, the when you have a reduction in bachelor degree bachelor degrees you have an increase in crime and an increase in the murder rate as well so check out this um study this is that go to metroplanning.org metroplanning.org go to metroplanning.org and um download this study it's a 20-page study the cost of segregation the cost of segregation um there's an article from um Atlanta com about this. Also, we talked about this. uh, We talked about this the other day. Uh, Segregation results in loss of money, low education, high mortality for everybody. Segregation results in loss of money, lower education, high mortality for everybody. Check out this study. They looked at, uh, this was a 20 page study from 1990 to 2010. And they looked at 100 cities across the country, including Atlanta, Chicago, um, New York, okay? And they discovered that racial segregation impacts African Americans the most economically and results in increased homicide rates among uh, African Americans. Uh, so, check, so check this out. This is, this is a deep study. So when we are putting together agendas, Studies like this have to be incorporated into an agenda because what they're talking about is segregation of opportunity, segregation of resources that our tax dollars help pay for. They're talking about segregation of resources It's not saying that our life would be great if we could live next door to white people. This is talking about something much deeper. OK, so check out that article. Segregation results in loss of money, lower education, high mortality for everybody all right okay we're going to go to this next story because we're going to stop broadcasting on YouTube but uh, those watching on YouTube visit our website africanhistorynetwork.com africanhistorynetwork.com we have the information there for our uh, live webinar that starts this Thursday April 13th 2017 understanding the transatlantic slave trade what they didn't teach you in school understanding the transatlantic slave trade what they didn't teach you in school this is a four week course, uh, two hours um, each week, every Thursday. And these are recorded. These are recorded. You can go back and watch them over and over and over again. Okay? So we have the information at um, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We're going to post it again here on the thread of the broadcast on uh, Facebook Live also, so you can register uh, for that. Okay? Now, who watching us on Facebook and who watching us on YouTube, who is registered for the course that's starting Thursday, who is registered for the course starting Thursday? Okay, so when I deal with the transatlantic slave trade, I deal with it differently than a lot of people. I deal with it chronologically as opposed to an episode in history. Okay, it didn't just pop up in history. It's the result of previous historical events taking place. Okay, so. When we when we deal with the transatlantic slave trade, we first have to understand that African people are the indigenous people of North, Central and South America. We we are the indigenous people of North, Central and South America. The Khoisan have the oldest DNA on the planet. The Khoisan um, come from Southern Africa. They go they go all around the world. They are the ancestors to the Ainu and the Twa. The Twa are referred to uh, oftentimes in anthropology and archaeology as the Pygmies. Okay, but the Khoisan were here in this land. You're going to have a presence from ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt here as well. You're going to have voyages from this land. We call the United States back and forth to Africa. In 2004, Dr. Albert Goodyear... Um, um, Dr Albert Goodyear made the discovery in Allendale County South Carolina um, and discovered the African presence dating back at least fifty one thousand seven hundred years ago so we can't start our history studying uh, starting in slavery okay this was our land taken away from us We were here before Native Americans came into existence so when I deal with the transatlantic slave trade, I deal with it chronologically as opposed to it episodically as opposed to episodic history you we also have to deal with the 800-year occupation by Europe, by the Africans known as the Moors, who are going to introduce science and almanacs and spherical globes and different types of musical instruments, nautical instruments, navigational instruments, all different types of things like this. And they're taking into Europe the teachings from the ancient Kemetic mystery system or the ancient Egyptian mystery system. And their teachings are going to bring Europe out of the Dark Ages. And this is going to help set the foundation and help set the scene for Columbus, Christopher Columbus or Cristobal Colon, to be able to set sail on his four voyages starting August 3rd, 1492. And Columbus so-called discovering the new world and uncovering countries like Jamaica and Haiti and Puerto Rico and Cuba, things like this. This is going to, uh, Uh, Open up the new world and lay the foundation for slavery, racism, capitalism, the exploitation of indigenous people and open up the new world for these other European nations to come in and fight over this new land. Because Europe is trying to rebuild itself. They're coming out of the dark ages and they're trying to rebuild themselves. So this is what we deal with. This is why it's in four parts. It's eight hours. All the sessions are recorded. You can go back and watch it over and over again. It's only it's only forty dollars. Visit africanhistorynetwork.com, africanhistorynetwork.com. Information is there on, on Facebook. Uh, okay, Greg Osborne said Saturday session was uh, awesome. All right, thanks, Greg, because uh, we have another section. But we have a new section. We have a new class starting up this Thursday, session number one, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. You go ahead, and register for that today. Those on YouTube, go to africanhistorynetwork.com africanhistorynetwork.com uh those listening on blog talk radio you can go to africanhistorynetwork.com we have the information there those on uh, facebook we posted the um uh, link here on the thread you go ahead and register for that make sure you have pen and pad handy come ready to learn because i have a lot of information it's going to totally blow you away all right okay uh all right who's this okay parks on um YouTube. Okay, guys, we got to get out of here from YouTube. We'll be back in a few minutes. All right. So we'll start broadcasting on YouTube. And um, okay, on Facebook, we'll be back in a few minutes. Hey, you listen to the uh, Michael M. Hotep show. Michael M. T- Michael M. Hotep show at night. Okay. Nighttime edition. Um, we'll be back in a few minutes here. Here is um, little Malcolm X. Okay And um, let's go to this here Which one Here's Malcolm X asking the question Who taught you to hate yourself?
3: Please Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin To such extent that you bleach To get like the white man? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose And the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself? from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate, you should ask who yourself who taught you to hate being what God gave you. teach you to love the hair that God gave you. Here you way out in the middle of the ocean, can't swim, and you worried about someone that's in the bathtub and can't swim. We don't steal, we don't gamble, we don't lie, and we don't cheat. And that also deprives the government of revenue. Because you can't get into a whiskey bottle without getting past the government seal. You can't open a deck of cards without getting past the government seal. Here's a white man makes the whiskey and then puts you in jail for getting drunk. He sells you the cards and the dice and puts you in jail when he catches you using it. So he's against us because we fixed it where he can't catch you anymore. We take the dice out of your hands and the cards out of your hands and the whiskey out of your head. The most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. The and as Muslims, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us to respect our women and to protect our women. And then the only time a Muslim really gets real violent is when someone goes to molest his woman. We will kill you for our woman. I'm, I'm making it plain, yes. We will kill you for our woman. We believe that if the white man will do whatever is necessary to see that his woman gets respect and protection, then you and I will never be recognized as men until we stand up like men and place the same penalty over the head of anyone who puts his filthy hands out to put in the direction of our women.
0: Alright, so that was Malcolm X talking about who taught you to hate yourself. Um, let's see here. Okay. So, let's go to some comments, and then also if you have a question or comment, you can give us a call. If you have a quick question or comment, give us a call. 914-338-1375. 914 338 1375 press the number one key to put you in queue if you have a question or comment maybe refresh the screen here 914-338-1375 all right um, get to this next story here because I got to have to get out of here shortly uh, okay so we talked about the DOJ <coughs> we dealt with that Story about the Russian hackers. You may have to get we'll probably have to get to that tomorrow. Story about the Russian hackers. But United Airlines is in the news again. And it's not for uh it's not for a good reason. Let me set this up on YouTube again here. So it's freezing up. Okay. Um So we'll come to that story in just a minute. Okay, just a second here. I need to set something up here on um, YouTube to record this, to broadcast. All right, how's everybody doing tonight? Okay. Um Here, I'm going to go to this other story right quick. um, The story dealing with the Russian hackers. Let's just jump into that quickly. So I was watching this. um, Watching watching a Rachel Maddow show last night. I was watching a replay of it, MSNBC. And she talked about a story from the New York Times, because I printed this article from the New York Times, Um, when it came out, April 6th. Uh, And this is about how the CIA had evidence of uh, a Russian effort to help Donald Trump earlier than believed. This is from April 6th, 2017. This is from last week. April 6th, 2017. And let me pull up this clip here because you have to, you have to hear this and the walls are closing in on uh, Trump. You had a Russian hacker that was arrested. Um, I think yesterday or day before yesterday, you had a Russian hacker that was arrested. Um, New York times has an article from April 10th from yesterday. U.S. accuses Russian email spammer of vast network of fraud. US accuses, vast, uh, U.S. accuses Russian email spammer of vast network of fraud. Then there was um, the article from April 9th, New York Times. Spain arrests Russian thought to be kingpin of computer spam. Okay? Spain arrests Russian, who is thought to be kingpin of computer spam. Then there was one from um, the um, NBC News about this also. Let me see, do I have that one? Oh, yes. Yeah. Russian hacker busted in Spain, latest in global U.S. Roundup. Russian hacker busted in Spain, latest in global U.S. Roundup that's from yesterday, April 10th. Okay. All right. So I'm going to, we're going to go to this clip here in just a minute. Uh, Hey, remember all of our DVD, all of our DVDs are available at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Um, all of our DVDs are available there. All of my lectures. We also have the hidden colors, family bundle pack available. Uh, you get all four installments of Hidden Colors. You get four of my DVD presentations and one installment of Afro Man, the Protectors of the Book of Knowledge. We just shipped some mortars out today and yesterday. Uh, Greg Osborne asks Have you changed your time to come on later than 4 p.m.? Uh, I'm, I'm broadcasting a blog talk. Empowerment uh, Regal Network has to get back up and running. I'm trying to do 4 p.m., but I have a lot going on, so sometimes I have to do later. Okay, so. Um, So, NBC News reported yesterday, the Russian hacker arrested in Spain this weekend is the latest suspect swept up in a global dragnet that U.S. officials hope will yield intelligence on Russian government interference in November's presidential election. Now, this is something big here. This is something big here. And I saw stories about this yesterday. And I've been reading articles about this also. Okay, uh all right, this is let's close that out. This is running slowly. Let's open it up here. So at least six Russians have been arrested in Europe on international warrants over the past several months, according to McClatchy newspapers. That's the McClatchy report. The most recent arrest was Friday, last Friday, in Barcelona, Spain, where where a 32-year-old Russian computer programmer was nabbed. (coughs) His name is Piotr Leveshov. Piotr Leveshov, 32 years old, was arrested Friday. Uh, A tweet from the Spanish National Police said that, quote, in cooperation with the FBI one of the most wanted cyber criminals has been detained in Barcelona. He is accused of scamming and data theft. He is accused of scamming and data theft, end quote. Now the U S has charged. Levishov is spam Kingpin, Peter Severa, who is closely associated with Russia's most active cyber criminals. Okay. Now, according to Russian television, Quoting Levishov's wife, qu- quoting uh, uh, Piotr Levishov's wife, armed police stormed into their apartment in Barcelona, Spain, and quizzed her husband for two hours. Later, in a phone conversation from a Spanish jail, Maria Levishov said her husband told her the arrest was, quote, linked Okay. All right. So we're back on uh, we're back on Blog Talk. All right. Good. We're back. We dropped a call somehow. Let me see. Are we back? Should be back. Okay. Good. All right. Back on Blog Talk Radio. All right. Good. Okay. So let's go to this uh, let's go to the story here from uh, MSNBC. This deals with Uh, The Russian spammer. Uh, This is from the Rachel Maddow show. Uh, She reported on the latest developments in investigation into Russia's interference to the 2016 presidential election and the possibility of coordination with the Donald Trump campaign, including the arrest of uh, a Russian hacker in Spain. Let's go to this clip.
2: with an intriguing piece of news out of Spain. Now, this is an FBI story, but the FBI is officially not commenting on it, so I will tell you at the outset we are sort of left to our own devices in terms of figuring out exactly what this means. But one of the ways we can start to do that is at this website. This is a website called Spam House, (laughs) which sounds like a delicious idea for a downscale retro Hawaiian fast food place. But, uh, but Spamhouse, Spamhaus, S-P-A-M-H-A-U-S, Spamhaus.org. It's basically an online international clearinghouse for information and news and statistics and leads about uh, the ways that people use the internet to commit crimes and steal stuff. It's about spam and hacking and malware and viruses, all the means that people use to mount online attacks. And they have done their best at Spam Spamhaus. Um, to try to make the worst spammers in the world uh, very famous. Obviously, this is the sort of crime that you can commit without anybody ever laying eyes on you. But Spam House has done their best to try to create a uh, you know, FBI-style pen most wanted list for, for spammers. Quoting from uh, SpamHouse.org, up to 80% of spam targeted at Internet users around the world is generated by a hardcore group of about 100 known persistent spam gangs whose names, aliases, and operations are documented in House's register of known spam operations database. And, and they, they post that explanation right along what is basically their version of the 10 most wanted list. Quote, this top 10 chart of spammers is based on House's view of the highest threat least repentant, most persistent, and generally the worst of the career spammers causing the most damage on the internet currently. So they've got their top 10 list. And if you need to puff, puff up your patriotic pride a little bit, if you've been worrying that maybe the United States of America is not holding our own when it comes to this technically adept corner of the criminal underworld, rest assured, it turns out we're doing great. Of the top 10 worst spammers in the world, Seven out of the ten of them are USA, USA. Um, Two of the ten are from Ukraine, uh, and there's one guy on the list who has been on that list for a long time who is Russian. And this is the news. The Russian guy just got arrested. Uh, He is known online as Peter Severa, or just Severa. He's also known as uh, Peter Leveshov. And according to Spamhouse.org, he is a, quote, spammer who writes and sells virus spamming, spamware, (laughs) and botnet access. He's probably involved in the writing and releasing of viruses and Trojans. He's one of the longest operating criminal spam lords on the internet. Now, the reason this kind of criminal arrest is now American politics news is because one of the things that we've all had to learn in reporting and understanding the story of the Russian government hacking our presidential election last year. One of the things we've had to get familiar with in terms of how the Russian government, the Russian military, the Russian intelligence services mount those kinds of attacks, we have had to learn about the overlap in Russia between criminal hacking, you know, hacking for profit, hacking just for thievery, the overlap between that and Russian government intelligence work. I mean, yes, America is still king of the world when it comes to online criminal activity, hacking, spam, stealing, and stuff. But Russia's pretty good, too. And over the years, an unusual thing has emerged in the Russian government. The Russian intelligence services, including their military intelligence service, they have moved beyond just trying to tap bright young computer science undergrads to enlist and join the spy services. They have moved beyond that sort of recruiting of people into the intelligence services from the computer world, and they instead have moved into the criminal part of the hacking world. They have taken great pains to to co-opt the most successful criminal hackers and spam artists operating illegally in Russia. Rather than prosecute them, instead they use them. They essentially piggyback on that criminal activity and take over some of that criminal activity for their own purposes in Russian intelligence. So Russian criminal hackers are stealing personal data and financial information from, for example, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of users of Yahoo.com. Okay, fine, that's a criminal act. They're doing it for profit. But Russian intelligence then uses that hack to specifically target individual journalists and opposition figures who they want to go after for political reasons, for government reasons. That's the way it works. And, And with this guy who just got arrested in Spain, that particular overlap between criminal work and intelligence work for Russia, that overlap is very, very clear with him. As long ago as 2012, there was open source reporting in Russia that he had crossed over from just being a famous criminal hacker to working for the FSB, working for the successor agency to the KGB. He was reported to be uh, making the pitch to other hackers in closed online communication forums, asking other hackers to do work on behalf of the Russian government, on behalf of the Russian spy service. Also, his own online criminal activity was implicated in a pro-Putin Russian government operation. Uh, I'll quote this part from uh, today's New York Times. Quote, Peter Severa's spam operation ran a sophisticated, evolving family of computer viruses I'm going to mispronounce these, but I'll do my best. A, a sophisticated, evolving family of computer viruses called Walladak and later Kelehos. I have no idea if that's how you say them. But look at this, quote, the Kelehos virus had been devised to spread spam, but during the Russian election in 2012, it was used to send political messages to email accounts on computers with Russian IP addresses. And those emails linked to fake news stories saying that the businessman who was running for president against Vladimir Putin had come out as gay. So this guy was one of the most famous criminal spam kingpins in the world. These viruses and botnet operations that he built for his spam umpire apparently had made him fabulously wealthy. When BuzzFeed News wrote up uh, this story today, they quoted a, a fellow Russian hacker as describing Peter Leveshov as living a lifestyle so lavish, quote, it would have embarrassed an oligarch. So he's a top 10 internationally listed criminal spam kingpin. He's reported to have recruited other hackers online to work for the Russian intelligence service. His own viruses were put to work in a Russian election a few years ago, spreading fake news that Putin's opponent was gay. And now he's been arrested in Spain. And get this. He was arrested in Spain at the request of the FBI. Hmm. And the FBI is not talking about why they wanted him arrested or what this is about. But in Russian language media reporting on this arrest today, and in Spanish media reporting on this arrest today, because, again, the arrest was in Spain, multiple publications have run quotes from this guy's wife, who was with him in Barcelona when he got arrested. And she says what he told her about why he was being arrested is that had to, had to do with a computer virus that he had created that was related to Donald Trump winning the presidential election in the United States last year. So this guy has been a known notorious spammer for years, for years. But he has traveled freely around the world. He has never been arrested that we know of. He has never behaved as if he feared arrest. Certainly he never behaved as if he feared arrest by the FBI by traveling to a country that had an extradition treaty with the United States like Spain does. But he got picked up in Barcelona and now he's in a Spanish prison because the FBI asked for Spanish authorities to pick him up. Why? And why now? Should we believe these quotes from his wife, who says that he told her his arrest had something to do with the US election? We don't know, the FBI will not say. Uh, For what it's worth, the no comment that the FBI is giving on this story, uh, it came from the criminal division of the FBI, not from the national security division of the FBI. So maybe the origin of the no comment is significant in some way, I don't know. But this does come at a time when some new pieces are starting to fall in place uh, in terms of the pace and the scope and the, the focus of the investigation into the Russia attack and this crucial question of whether or not the Trump campaign was involved in that attack. The Financial Times reported last week that the FBI has now created a special unit in Washington to oversee all aspects of this investigation. Uh, It had previously been reported that the investigation was spread out among multiple FBI field offices all around the country. Apparently, they will now start operating out of a single unit in Washington. CBS has recently reported that although the FBI investigation didn't start until July of last year, according to CBS, the focus of the FBI investigation has now shifted to months earlier than that. CBS reports that the FBI is now looking at the initial Russian hack of the Democratic Party, which happened all the way back in March. They are reportedly looking into whether or not people associated with the Trump campaign might have helped direct that initial hack, might have helped direct those Russian efforts as early as last March when the the, the hacking and the stealing first started. In addition to that, on Thursday night as the U.S. Navy launched Tomahawk missiles at a Syrian air base. Uh, one of the pieces of news that night that got kind of lost in the sauce as everybody covered that military strike was word that the CIA had come across news about the Russian attack and about the Trump campaign's possible connections to that attack that the CIA apparently found very alarming last summer. According to the New York Times, in late August, CIA Director John Brennan was so concerned about what the CIA was seeing, about increased evidence of Russia's election meddling, that he began a series of urgent individual briefings for eight top members of Congress. Quote, it is unclear what new intelligence might have prompted the classified briefings, but concerns were growing internally and publicly at the time about a significant Russian breach of the Democratic National Committee and the CIA, this is important, the CIA... Began seeing signs of possible connections to the Trump campaign.
0: Okay, so the name of that article uh, that they're citing in the clip here from the Rachel Maddow Show is from the New York Times, April 6, 2017. CIA had evidence of Russian effort to help Trump earlier than believed. CIA had evidence of Russian effort of Russian effort to help Trump earlier than believe. And in the article, it says the CIA told senior lawmakers in classified briefings last summer, summer 2016, that it had information indicating that Russia was working to help elect Donald J. Trump president, a finding that did not emerge publicly until after Donald Trump's victory months later, former government officials say. The briefings indicate that intelligence officials had evidence of Russia's intentions to help Trump uh, much earlier in the presidential campaign than previously thought. The briefings also reveal a critical split last summer between the CIA and counterparts at the FBI, where a number of senior officials continued to believe through last fall that Russia's cyber attacks were aimed primarily at disrupting America's political system and not at getting Donald Trump elected, according to interviews. So the CIA had evidence of Russia interfering to help Donald Trump become president. The FBI, because they're, because the, the FBI deals with domestic things. The CIA is a spy agency. They deal with things internationally. The FBI didn't see it that way, but the CIA most likely was looking at different information. The former official said in late August, 10 weeks before the election, John O. Brennan, the then then CIA director, was so concerned about increasing evidence of Russia's election meddling that he began a series of urgent individual briefings for eight top members of Congress, some of them on secure phone lines while they were on their summer breaks. This is the gang of eight, okay? Read this article. It's a six-page article from New York Times. This stuff is deep. The walls are closing in on, on Donald Trump.
2: In an August 25th briefing for then Senator Harry Reid, John Brennan indicated that unnamed advisors to Mr. Trump might be working with the Russians to interfere in the election. So the CIA thought that that was enough of a possibility that they needed to individually start briefing senior leadership in Congress. Not just the Russian attack, Trump involvement in the attack. So in terms of division of labor and national security law here, The CIA can only handle the foreign part of this, right? The CIA can only handle the Russian attack part of this. When it comes to the possibility of the Trump campaign or any other Americans helping that effort, well, then you're talking about Americans. That's a domestic issue. That becomes an American law enforcement operation, right? And and that sort of thing is not handled by the CIA. That has to be handled by the FBI. But this new reporting indicates that the CIA last summer somehow came into possession of information that it found sufficiently alarming that the director did one-on-one briefings with the leadership in Congress. Not to tell them about Russia interfering at the election, but to tell them about Russia interfering with the election and the distinct possibility that the Trump campaign was helping Russia do that. So the Trump campaign side of that is something that the FBI would have to handle ultimately, not the CIA. And because of that, because that's FBI territory, at that point, the investigation becomes a black box to us in terms of what we know about it, or at least in terms of what the FBI will say about it. But whether or not they are talking about these things, we can see what they're doing. And one of the things they have just done is request the arrest of this Russian intelligence linked criminal mega hacker who's now sitting in a jail cell in Barcelona, presumably about to be extradited to the United States. And the FBI won't say beep about it.
0: Okay, so the article that they just referenced in this clip is from April 9th, 2017. Spain arrests Russian thought to be kingpin of computer spam. New York Times, Spain arrests Russian thought to be kingpin of computer spam. Okay, check out that article. Because this from last night and these articles from the last few days about this development and the capture of 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 uh, uh, Peter Levishov, okay, this ties right into the story that broke tonight, this evening from The Washington Post about Carter Page. okay. let's go back to this clip.
2: Inside of that is something that the FBI would have to handle, ultimately, not the CIA. And because of that, because that's FBI territory, at that point, the investigation becomes a black box to us in terms of what we know about it, or at least in terms of what the FBI will say about it. But whether or not they are talking about these things, we can see what they're doing. And one of the things they have just done is request the arrest of this Russian intelligence-linked criminal mega-hacker who's now sitting in a jail cell in Barcelona, presumably about to be extradited to the United States. And the FBI won't say beep about it. So there's a lot going on in the world right now. There's a lot going on in politics. There's a lot going on in the news that doesn't look like politics until you scratch the surface a little bit. But as Secretary of State Rex Tillerson prepares to go to Moscow, as this administration continues to enjoy its first real bout of shallow good press about their bombing 2,000% of all the planes in Syria, the one potentially existential scandal of this administration really is still moving. Tonight, it's moving in Barcelona. Tomorrow, who knows?
0: Watch this space. Okay, so this that story from last night on the Rachel Maddow Show ties into the breaking news story from the Washington Post this evening, okay? Now, we uh, timed out on Facebook so you missed the last article that I gave because they talked about this in this, this clip from the Rachel Maddow Show. The article from the New York Times, April 9th, 2017. Spain arrests uh Spain arrests Russian, thought to be kingpin of computer spam. Spain arrests Russian, thought to be kingpin of computer spam. Every day, more and more of these pieces of this puzzle are falling into place. Every day, because I've been following this for months, every day, more and more of the pieces of this puzzle are falling into place. Okay? And I think Donald Trump is going to be forced To resign from office He's going to be forced Because all this stuff's coming out He's going to be forced to resign from office Alright so uh, This evening Washington Post has an article Posted at 7.11pm Eastern Standard Time FBI obtained FISA warrant To monitor former Trump advisor Carter Page Now Carter Page Is the same guy who in March of this year admitted on uh, All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC that he met with Sergey Kislyak, who is the Russian ambassador to the U.S. He had a meeting with him during the campaign, okay? Even though just the previous month he said he never met with Sergey Kislyak. So you kept having people who were in the Trump campaign and surrounded it, who kept lying about meeting with the Russian ambassador, Sergey Kislyak, and then we found out later that they didn't meet with him. So in this article here, that it was a breaking news story tonight, and they've been reporting on it since it broke in the seven o'clock hour, the FBI obtained a secret court order last summer, summer 2016, to monitor The communications of an advisor to presidential candidate Donald Trump, part of an investigation into possible links between between Russia and the Donald Trump campaign, law enforcement and other U.S. officials said. The FBI and the Justice Department, the DOJ, obtained a warrant targeting Carter Page's communications after convincing a foreign intelligence surveillance court. Uh, a foreign intelligence surveillance court judge that there was probable cause to believe that Carter Page was acting as an agent of a foreign power, in this case, Russia, according to the officials. Now, Carter Page was an advisor to Donald Trump, yet Donald Trump said he didn't know him. Later on, Donald Trump said he didn't know him. But then they, then they have video of Donald Trump talking about Carter Page and what a great guy he is and what a great, good job he's doing, all types of things like this. Now, this is the clearest evidence so far that the FBI had reason to believe during the 2016 presidential campaign that a Donald Trump campaign advisor was in touch with Russian agents. Such contacts are now at the center of an investigation into whether The Donald Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian government to swing the election in Donald Trump's favor. Carter Page has not been accused of any crimes, and it is unclear whether the Justice Department might later seek charges against him or others in connection with Russia's meddling in the 2016 presidential election. The counterintelligence investigation into Russia, into Russian efforts to influence Uh, The U.S. election began in July of 2016. This was during the campaign. The the counterintelligence investigation into Russian efforts to influence the U.S. election began in July of 2016, officials said. Most such investigations don't result in criminal charges. The officials spoke about the court order on the condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss details of a counterintelligence probe. During an interview with the Washington Post editorial page staff in March of 2016, Donald Trump identified Carter Page, who had previously been an investment banker in Moscow. During an interview with the Washington Post editorial page staff, In March of 2016, Donald Trump identified Carter Page, who had previously been an investment banker in Moscow, Russia, as a foreign – he he identified him as a foreign policy advisor to the Donald Trump campaign. Now, Donald Trump campaign spokeswoman Hope Hicks later described Carter Page's role as, quote-unquote, informal. Carter Page has, released, has repeatedly denied any wrongdoing in his dealings with the Trump campaign or with Russia. This confirms all of my suspicions about unjustified, politically motivated government surveillance, Carter Page said in an interview on Tuesday. Okay, today, he said, quote, I have nothing to hide. He compared surveillance of him to the eavesdropping that the FBI and the Justice Department conducted against civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But you kept lying about meeting with Sergey Kislyak as recently as February, but then in March, on all-in Chris Hayes, you said you did meet with him. If you have nothing to hide, why did you keep lying? Now, the White House, FBI, and Justice Department declined to comment. FBI Director James Comey disclosed in public testimony to the House Intelligence Committee last month, March of t- 2017, that the that the uh, FBI is investigating efforts by the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. FBI Director James Comey said this includes investigating the quote nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign, and Russia's efforts, end quote. Now, FBI Director James Comey declined to comment during the hearing about any individuals, including Carter Page, who worked in Moscow for Merrill Lynch, the investment uh, brokerage firm, Merrill Lynch, a decade ago, and and who had said he invested in Russian energy giant uh, Gazprom, G-A-Z-P-R-O-M, in a letter to FBI director James Comey in September, Carter Page has said he had sold his gas problem investment. Read the rest of this article. This is a six-page article from the Washington Post. Read this article. FBI obtained FISA warrant to monitor former Trump advisor Carter Page. Okay? Now, this was a breaking news story tonight. This ties in to the story from last night, okay? So they talked about it tonight on uh, MSNBC, The Rachel Maddow Show. Former Trump advisor Carter Page targeted by a FISA warrant, okay, and this is reported by the Washington Post. Let's go to this clip.
2: We have to start tonight with a little bit of breaking news, which has just been published um, by the Washington Post. And I, I wanna say from the outset that the source of this news is very unusual. This is a breaking news story. It's about the Trump campaign and Russia. And this story springs from a very unusual leak. Um, It's a leak of something that really doesn't usually leak. And the Washington Post goes out of their way tonight to point out in their reporting that what is the source of this scoop that they've got, this is not a typical, you know, people talking to the press sort of leak. This is not something that usually gets leaked to the press. I'll just quote the way the Washington Post tonight describes it. Uh, This is about a, a FISA warrant. FISA stands for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. They have been leaked the contents of a FISA warrant. And as the Washington Post explains, quote, the judges who rule on FISA requests, on Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act requests, those judges oversee the nation's most sensitive national security cases, and their warrants are some of the most closely guarded secrets in the world of U.S. law enforcement and intelligence gathering. Nevertheless, the content of one of those warrants is what appears to have leaked tonight, at least what the Washington Post says they have uh, obtained tonight in the Trump-Russia story. That is a very unusual thing. FISA warrants don't leak. Uh, but one has leaked and it is breaking news tonight. Um, it's breaking news about somebody who was recently listed in court documents as mail number one. You might remember this story that we covered a few nights ago here on this show. Male number one, as described in this criminal indictment from a few years ago, was an American energy consultant. According to this filing by the court filing by the U.S. government, he was recruited as an unwitting asset for Russian intelligence back in 2013. Um, quoting from this court filing, on or about April 8, 2013. The defendants, who are Russian spies who are being surveilled by the FBI in this case, they discussed efforts to recruit a male working as a consultant in New York City as an intelligence source. The FBI picked up these conversations between Russian spies who were working out of New York, and according to the indictment where the U.S. government brought charges against them for being Russian spies, one of the things that these guys were caught on tape talking about was their new American intelligence asset who was listed in the indictment as male number one. Uh, The spies described him as uh, literally an idiot is the word they used for him. Uh, They described him as basically having no idea that he was befriending Russian spies. He wanted to make contacts and get promoted by the energy business. Eventually, the FBI goes and pays male number one a visit and male number one reveals that in uh, the course of this friendly relationship, he struck with these Russian spies he did pass them documents about the energy business, which is what they were trying to get from him in the first place. That's, that's what the Russians were after. This is how Russian spies cultivate Americans to betray the United States, right? Start off friendly. Start off with something that seems like a, a business relationship or an academic relationship. Uh, start off with handing over your own thoughts on specific industries, Try to get them to hand over some documents about those industries. Stay in touch, right? Start a transactional relationship. Maybe it turns into something, maybe it does not. This is what Russian spies, what spies from all countries who spy here try to do when they try to recruit Americans. Well, earlier this month, BuzzFeed News reported that male number one in that spy ring indictment was actually a Trump campaign foreign policy advisor named Carter Page. It seems like a, a, a weird coming together of different news stories, but Carter Page was apparently recruited as an American asset by Russian spies in New York in 2013. And it was a successful recruitment effort. They may have described him as an idiot, but he handed them documents. He handed them information to help them out. Carter Page met with a Russian intelligence operative named Viktor Podobny who was, in fact, later charged by the U.S. government, along with two others, for acting as unregistered agents of a foreign government. Funny thing about that BuzzFeed story uh, from last week is that the way that BuzzFeed confirmed that Carter Page was the intelligence asset in this story, the way they confirmed he was mail number one, is that, quote, Carter Page confirmed to BuzzFeed News that he is mail number one (laughs) in the court filing. He just flat out told them, and yes, he had been in in contact with this, uh, indicted Russian spy, Viktor Podovny, So that background of, of Carter Page from that Russian spy story in 2013, that's part of what adds to the mystery and the strangeness around the Trump campaign and their involvement with Carter Page. In March 2016, candidate Donald Trump was getting pressure in the media, pressure from his Republican rivals uh, for not having apparently any foreign policy advisors on his presidential campaign team. While he was getting that pressure, uh, including from the Washington Post editorial board in an interview, he pulled this random name out of a hat. Carter Page, he volunteered that name. Carter Page, he's my foreign policy advisor. The Washington Post was pressuring him on this subject at the editorial board meeting, and that guy was inexplicably one of the only foreign policy advisors Donald Trump could name. And just a couple of years before, he had been recruited as a Russian intelligence asset. So, and, and that is the background that brings us to tonight's breaking news, um, according to this remarkable leak to the Washington Post. The Washington Post uh, reports tonight that last summer, the FBI got a FISA court warrant, one of these super secret national security warrants that never leaks. Washington Post reports that a FISA warrant was issued last summer to monitor Carter Page's communications while he was an advisor to the Trump campaign. I'm quoting from tonight's article, which was just published within the last couple of hours, quote, the FBI obtained a secret court order last summer to monitor the communications of an advisor to presidential candidate Donald Trump, part of an investigation into possible links between Russia and the campaign. It's according to law enforcement and other U.S. officials. Quote, the FBI and the Justice Department obtained the warrant targeting Carter Page's communications after convincing a foreign intelligence surveillance court judge that there was probable cause to believe that Carter Page was acting as an agent of a foreign power, in this case, Russia. That's according to these officials. Quote, the government's application for the surveillance order targeted car- targeting Carter Page included a lengthy declaration that laid out investigators' basis for believing that he was an agent of the Russian government and that he knowingly engaged in clandestine intelligence activities on behalf of Moscow. Quote, among other things, the application cited contacts that he'd had with a Russian intelligence operative in New York City in 2013. Those contacts had earlier surfaced in a federal espionage case brought by the Justice Department against another Russian agent. In addition, the application said Carter Page had other contacts with Russian operatives that have not been publicly disclosed. Since this 90 day warrant was first issued, it has been renewed more than once by the FISA court, according to these officials who spoke with the Washington Post. So this is, if what the Washington Post has reported turns out to be true, this is a big advance in the story, right? It is is worth though, I can't stress this enough, it is worth keeping in mind that FISA warrants are super secret. The first rule of FISA is you don't talk about FISA. (laughs) I mean, the existence of the court, the existence of these types of warrants, often itself is treated as classified information. When House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes gave his spate of press conferences last month about what he implied might have been improper surveillance of Trump transition officials, He merely mentioned that some of the intelligence he saw came from FISA warrants. Immediately upon him saying that, classification experts started wondering aloud if perhaps Devin Nunes had disclosed classified information just by saying that something he had seen had been obtained through a FISA warrant. He's now under investigation for potentially disclosing classified information. And now tonight, somebody has leaked to the Washington Post not just the existence of a FISA warrant in the Trump-Russia investigation, but a whole lot of information about its contents. That in itself is stunning. Even before you get to the part about a campaign advisor to the sitting US president being under FISA court surveillance as a suspected agent of a foreign power. While that foreign power was affecting the US election to try to elect our current president. Joining us now is Adam Entis. He's a national security reporter for The Washington Post. He was on the team of reporters who broke this story tonight. Mr. Entis, thank you for joining us um, on short notice tonight. I really appreciate you being here.
6: No problem. Happy to be here.
2: So, uh, first of all, let me ask you if if you think it is um, appropriate for me to be putting this emphasis on the nature of this information uh, that's the basis of your report tonight it seems to me just as a layman just as an observer here that we very rarely get a leak let alone a detailed leak of the contents of a fisa warrant is that fair to say
6: uh, you know I, I haven't really looked back and to try to get a sense of uh, what other details about uh, fisa warrants have, uh, have been have been leaked uh, i think in this case obviously it's uh, uh it's important to kind of understand the context and like you said uh it was uh, you know last summer when uh, when it looked uh, to the intelligence community like Russia was intervening in the election uh and you can understand uh why the FBI as which had it launched its investigation uh counterintelligence investigation in July would be interested in trying to get to the bottom of any contacts between people both who uh, are working for the campaign and also have Russian contacts, and like you did notice, uh, you did uh, take note there was this previous contact between Page and a Russian agent, uh, which uh, which obviously the FBI knew about uh, when he surfaced on the campaign.
2: The, the one sharp difference um, between that described. Uh, interaction that he had with known Russian spies in twenty thirteen. Again, for context there, that was a case that was actually prosecuted by the Justice Department. It was an employee of a Russian bank.
0: Okay, just a second, because we timed out on Facebook. Okay, we're back on Facebook. Hey, this is uh, the Michael M. Hotep show. Uh so the late the nighttime edition, late edition. So we're dealing with this breaking news story that came out a few hours ago about um Carter Page, former Donald Trump advisor, and the FBI obtained a FISA warrant to monitor former uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, advisor Carter Page. Okay, and they obtained the um, the obtained a FISA warrant. Uh, I don't remember exactly when it was. Okay, so this was back this was during the uh, 2016 presidential campaign. They obtained uh, uh, a FISA warrant, okay? Uh, so we're continuing this. We'll broadcast on Facebook Live and it timed out. The, FBI, the FBI, FBI obtained a secret court order last summer, summer 2016, to monitor the communications of an advisor to presidential candidate Donald Trump, part of an investigation into possible links between Russia and the campaign. Law enforcement and other U.S. officials said. Let's go back to this clip. This is from uh, clips from tonight, uh, April 11th, 2017. This is from uh, the Rachel Maddow show, dealing with this uh, topic. Former Trump advisor Carter Page, (coughs) excuse me, targeted by FISA warrant. Former Trump advisor Carter Page targeted by FISA warrant. Let's go back to this clip.
2: A leak, let alone a detailed leak of the contents of a FISA warrant, is that fair to say?
6: Uh, you know, I, I haven't really looked back and to try to get a sense of uh, what other details about uh, FISA warrants have uh, have been have been leaked. Uh, I think in this case, obviously, it's uh, uh, it's important to kind of understand the context. And like you said, uh, it was. Uh, you know, last summer when uh, when it looked uh, to the intelligence community like Russia was intervening in the election, uh, and you can understand uh, why the FBI, as which had it launched its investigation, uh, counterintelligence investigation in July, would be interested in trying to get to the bottom of any contacts between people, both who uh, are working for the campaign and also have Russian contacts. And like you did notice, uh, you did uh, take note there was this previous contact between Page and a Russian agent, uh, which uh, which obviously the FBI knew about uh, when he surfaced on the campaign?
2: The, the one sharp difference um, between that described uh, interaction that he had with known Russian spies in 2013. Again, for context there, that was a case that was actually prosecuted by the Justice Department. It was an employee of a Russian bank in New York and two Russian government employees who were associated uh, with legitimate government outposts here in the United States. The three of them were tried. Two of them were back in Moscow and didn't actually get uh, physically put on trial here. One of them actually was tried and convicted and just got out of federal prison a few days ago. Um, in that case, he was described as a sent- Actually, an unwitting target of those those Russian spies, but what you guys are reporting tonight um, i 'll just quote here the government 's application for the surveillance order targeting page included a lengthy declaration that laid out investigators basis for believing he was an agent of the Russian government and that he knowingly engaged in clandestine intelligence activities on behalf of Moscow. So that would imply that he wasn't somebody who was being used unwittingly, but rather that he, he knew what he was doing and that he was deliberately acting as a, as a Russian agent.
6: Yeah, so I, as you know, I mean, the bar is relatively high for trying to get one of these FISA warrants, and it requires the investigators to uh, and the prosecutors to make a case of probable cause. And so uh, the, the, the officials we spoke to uh, described uh, some of the aspects of that case. There are other aspects of that case that they were making in this document that we are not aware of and which we just vaguely allude to, including uh, other contacts that uh, allegedly Page had with others on the Russian side. Uh, and so th- there still is a lot that we do not know about the contents of the of the uh, of the warrant. Uh, what was what the, what case the government uh, had to make to the FISA court in order to get this warrant? Uh, and uh, you know, as as it says in the story, the warrant was renewed at least once, if not multiple times. So, you know, typically they have to, uh, you know, these cases come up again. The judge takes another look and decides, are we getting anything of value out of this before deciding whether to renew? Uh, And we know in this case that it was renewed at least once.
2: Uh, And to that point, let me just raise with you, Adam, the, the, the statement that Carter Page gave to you when you guys brought him this information, this reporting uh, tonight, you quote him as saying, this confirms all of my suspicions about unjustified, politically motivated government surveillance. I have nothing to hide. He's um, implying or stating that this is, this is unfair, that there's no basis for him to have been the subject of this court order. When, when you confronted him with this information tonight, was, did it appear to be news to him? Was he aware that he was under this form of surveillance?
6: Uh, just to, to be, in, in the sake of full transparency, I wasn't one of the. I wasn't the reporter that made that call, so I, I'm not sure of what his reaction was mm-hmm. when he was told. Uh, but uh, you know, you can I think pretty much tell from the statement uh, that uh, maybe in the back of his mind he suspected uh, that this might have been going on, and his statement certainly dovetails with. Uh, You know, a a talking point, uh, an accusation that's been leveled uh, by the president himself and by others in the administration about, uh, you know, about surveillance that took place uh, in 2016 or alleged surveillance which took place in 2016. Uh, Some of which, uh, you know, I think uh, is pretty clear in the case of of, of, uh, Flynn, the national security — the former national security advisor, involved uh, incidental collection uh, but might have also included a FISA warrant like the one we're reporting on tonight.
2: Adam Entis, national security reporter for The Washington Post, with this uh, remarkable story that's just posted within the last uh, couple of hours. Adam, thank you very much for helping us understand this tonight. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you.
0: Okay. So that was from uh, tonight, Rachel Maddow show. Check that out. Former Trump advisor, Carter Page, targeted by FISA Warrant. That's at MSNBC.com. All right. Now, um, these other two stories we'll have to get to tomorrow because I have to get to bed because uh, it's late. My allergies flaring up a little bit. Okay, so those on Facebook who's registered for our, our online class that starts up this thir- this Thursday, April 13th, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade what they didn't teach you in school. Uh, Who's registered for that class? First session number one starts. uh, um, Session number one starts this Thursday, April 13th, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. All the sessions are recorded. Excuse me. All the sessions are recorded. So you can go back and watch them over and over and over again. All right. Uh, We'll post the uh, information again with the link to um, register. We'll post it here on Facebook. And um, you can also visit our website. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Um, We have the information right there on the home page also. You can register there as well. All right, this date in African-American history, uh, Spelman College opened in Atlanta, Georgia. This date in 1881. Spelman was the first institution of higher learning for African-American women. This date in 1935, Percy LeVon Julian, who was a chemist, who held 138 patents and helped create drugs for treating arthritis and glaucoma, Drugs were uh, One of those drugs was cortisone um, and uh, also aerofoam uh, used to put out gas, oil fires in World War II. He was born on this date in 1899, Percy LeVon Jr. Um, this date in 1956, Nat King Cole, world-renowned singer, was attacked by a mob of white supremacists um, while performing on stage in Birmingham, Alabama in 1956, Nat King Cole. This date in 1966, Emmett Ashford became the first African American uh, uh, Major League umpire. First African American Major League umpire. This date in 1967, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was re-elected congressman of Har- by Harlem voters defying Congress. This date in 1967, and this date in 1968, President Lyndon, J- Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights, the Fair Housing Act which was the civil rights bill lost, but the Fair Housing Act in 1968. Um, this act established open housing and banned discrimination uh, in the cell of most housing. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can read more facts about this date in African history and African-American history at Yenoba.com, Y-E-N-O-B-A, Yenoba.com. Okay. All right. So we have to get out of here. We'll be back tomorrow, probably broadcast around four o'clock tomorrow, I think. Um, we'll post the information here for the, um, for the live international webinar I'm doing um, starting April, starting this Thursday, April 13th, 2017, understanding the transatlantic slave trade what they didn't teach you in school, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Also go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, okay? All right, hey, remember on the Michael M. Hotep show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's corrects wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you is based upon what you think about yourself. It's not over till we win. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Y'all, I do you know.
5: Got the pear trees baking like a dog dogwood. The thunderstorms in the springtime, it's all good. And rappers killing it in the club, but can we brag now? Not black lives just had to die to get a flag down. And my rap is up the map of Southside Atlanta. Was just a cell for 50 years marching Alabama. Was just a Columbus, Ohio teaching little kids. South by Southwest
3: and Austin teaching family. The like kind of colleges that do a lot of interviews. And I'm making some nights.